Father, we do come before you and you're holy and you desire us to reflect your holy character. And we're going to be looking at that tonight in Ephesians. And even though you're holy and high above us, you love us and you have displayed your great love, um, your mercy toward us in raising us from the dead when we were enslaved and dead in our sin. And you saved us for yourself. You saved us for good works. And we want to be people who reflect that. And we pray that tonight um, you would speak through your word, that uh, you would produce the fruit that you desire to see in your people, and that you would use us um, here in this church to um, just to deepen the faith of those that are here and use us in the community to, as you're drawing folks to yourself, that uh, we would be faithful um, in evangelism. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good evening. Uh, it's great to be back with you guys tonight. We're entering back into our study of, in Ephesians, and I am sure that you remember that we are in Ephesians 4, and we're studying this theme of being the imitators of God. So if you would, just go ahead and open in your Bibles to Ephesians 4. And we're studying this theme uh, of the imitators of God, and that's, that's because God in His great mercy has saved us, and He's enabling us to, to imitate Him. If you're a believer tonight, according to Ephesians... In the scriptures, that, that God, has, God has raised you from the dead. He's placed you in Christ. He's given you a new identity. He's given you new inclinations that flow from His presence, from His Spirit. And the sin that you once loved, as an unbeliever, you're now becoming aware of, now, now, now you're beginning to hate that sin. And the righteousness that you once hated, or you ignored, you now love and, and you're willing to pursue. Now, it's not perfect, we know that. Uh, we still battle the old inclinations. The old edemic nature still plagues us, still deceives us, still tempts us, and we're still fraught with weakness, with sin, with failure. But we know that we have been changed. We know that. We're not who we, we ought to be, but we're not who we once were either. And that's all because of God's incredible mercy on our lives. And in Ephesians 4... Paul is reminding us that, that this reality, the reality of our new birth, the reality of what's happened to us on the inside, should start showing up on the outside. It should start manifesting in how we live. And we're called to become who we are. So that's really one of the themes of Ephesians. Become who God's created you to be. And, and if you remember, we have an individual responsibility in this growth process. Look, at it, look again at Ephesians 4.22. Paul tells us to put off our old self in verse 22, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul's told us to put off the old man in verse 22. We're learning to, to identify those remnants of the old man, those those old deceits and those old sinful practices that we used to do, maybe we still struggle with at times, we need to, to identify those and discard it like old clothes. And he's also told us not just to put off, but to, to renew our minds, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Verse 23. The truth helps us to identify those old lies that we once believed, and the truth renovates us in our inner person, in our heart. As we come to church, as we hear preaching, we seek discipleship, as we meditate on the truth, the Lord renews our minds. That's how this happens. And finally, he's told us in verse 24 to put on our new nature. To put it on. So take the new clothes and put them on. We're, we're learning to live like Christ. That's what this means. To imitate our Father who's in heaven. To live like the new creatures that we've been created to be. We're learning to obey Christ by faith. And that's, that's what put on, the new self means. And what I love about this chapter, uh, chapter 4 and then bleeding into chapter 5, is how practical these commands are. God doesn't just leave us in the dark with what this should look like in our life. He spells it out for us in uh, 
painstaking detail, convicting detail at times. Paul says in verse 25, just, just covering ground for where we've been, that, that we should no longer be people that are characterized by deceit or deception. But instead, we should be characterized by the truth now. We shouldn't be liars, people who shirk responsibility for sin, but we should be humble, honest, and truthful. People that promote the truth are characterized by truthfulness. That's verse 25. Verse 26, he says we should learn to put away sinful anger in all its forms. We should learn to be restrained in our anger. We should learn to deal with people appropriately and to reconcile with those we've been in conflict with. That's what it means to be a new creature in Christ, to live like Christ. And like we saw last week, verse 28, he says that we should no longer freeload and steal, but instead we should learn to work hard so that we can be generous. Now these are practical and super straightforward verses about how God desires us to live now that we've come to know Him. And these qualities are what should now come to increasingly characterize our lives over time as a result of the Spirit working in us. And tonight, Paul's going to add another quality to the list, and it is our speech. We've got to figure this thing out. This happens every week. We think, oh, whoa, whoa, trigger happy. Look at that. Okay, edifying speech. So Paul's adding this, this, this next quality. How we talk, what comes out of our mouths, what we say. So super creatively, I'm calling this edifying speech. Look with me, if you will, in verse 29. Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. So Paul is concerned with how we talk, with our edifying speech. And he he issues these commands here because he knows that words are incredibly important. Agreed? Words are incredibly important. Paul knew how the words of a talking snake were responsible for the death of humanity. He knew how the, the words of this serpent were used to plunge the entire human race into a state of rebellion and sin. He knew how slander and gossip ruined the lives of those in the Old Testament narratives. And not only did he know it from reading, he knew it from experience. On multiple occasions, he had personally experienced the pain of of hostile and untrue words that were hurled at him from people who opposed him. Even from people in the church. Even from people that he had led to Christ and had discipled. Yet at the same time, Paul also knew the the great power and the great opportunity for good that comes with our speech, with our words. In our tongues lies an opportunity for life. Life. And an opportunity to announce the gospel, to provide encouragement and counsel, to lift the human spirit and to arouse courage. Our words influence for good or for evil, toward life or toward death. And truly, as Solomon says in in Proverbs 18.21, he says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, Proverbs 18.21. So clearly, according to Scripture, our words matter. Now, you might be thinking, okay, like I'm with you. I I understand that words matter. But we really need to lean in here. You and I will quickly acknowledge that words are important, but we often live like they aren't important. Okay, so we'll acknowledge, yeah, that's, that's a major deal, Clay. But our lives often betray how we actually think and feel. How so? We'll just consider this for for a moment. How often do you think, consciously think, before you speak? How intentionally 
Do you choose your words when you're in conversations? How mindful are you that you will be judged for every single idle word that you speak according to the words of Christ? At the end of the day, how often do you evaluate what you said and how you said it? Do you ever measure how you're influencing the people around you by the words that you speak? Are you even aware that you're influencing the people around you by the words that you speak? Are you aware of what comes out of your mouth even most of the day? Like, could, you, could you even recount that like when you go to bed? I think if we're honest, we see that the practice of our lives, how we use our words, often reveals that we don't really think our words are that important. But the scriptures say otherwise. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. So right out of the gate, we've got to renew our minds at this most fundamental level. We've got to be aware of the tremendous potential that's behind our teeth. And so this conviction about the importance of our speech is is really what drives Paul to issue the commands that we see in this verse. And he gives us three interrelated commands. They go together. And these three commands help us to to leverage our speech for kingdom purposes. Or just to make the most of our speech. So three commands that, that Paul's going to give us to help us make the most of our speech. Number one, Paul says, do not destroy with your words. It's pretty obvious. Okay? Don't, don't blow things up with your, <laughs> with your words. Easier said than done. Don't destroy with your words. Look again in verse 29. Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Paul begins in in the same pattern he's been following throughout this this chapter. He starts with something that we need to put off or trash. He says we're not to allow anything corrupt to come out of our mouths. Every diseased word has got to go. It shouldn't even be let out of the gate of our mouths, is the imagery here. So, like, don't let it out. Like, close the gate. Now, this immediately raises a question, okay, right? What does Paul mean by corrupt speech? Like, what does he, what does he have in mind? So you might think of one thing or, or two things, but let's, let's flesh this out. Corrupt speech has the idea of something that's rotten or, or it's defiling. Think of a dead and decaying fish, how that smells. It's whatever words that poison, words that lead towards sin, words that are untrue or unhelpful or sinful. Or you can think of it like this, anything that, that weakens or destroys relationships. Anything that erodes trust, that leads away from God. It's all got to go, is what Paul's saying in this corruption. The bottom line is this, it's, it's any speech that harms the body, that destroys the unity that's achieved by the Spirit. And that's going to be really important. We're going to come back to that idea. Any speech that harms the body of Christ, that's corrupting it, that's destroying the unity that was achieved by the Spirit. Here's a few examples, just to try to put some shoe leather on this. Okay? This is not exhaustive. Okay? So this is just examples as we're thinking through this together. So, examples of corrupt speech. Obviously, outbursts of anger. Okay? So that's disruptive. That hurts the body. It's not good. If you look down in verse 31, Paul gives a... Um, This anger and clamor right there that you see in verse 31, if you're in the ESV, anger, this idea of anger, has the idea of outbursts of anger, shouting. Um, it's sort of this explosion that comes through a conflict. And this happens, obviously, when there's, there's conflict in the church, in the home, uh, in our relationships, in your dorm, uh, in your, wherever you live. We explode emotionally and verbally. And this is obviously destructive, and it threatens the unity that the Spirit wants us to preserve in the church. So, just an example. Outbursts of anger would be one. We'll cover these quickly. Gossip and slander. Maybe you don't explode externally. Maybe that's not you. You're not, an, you're not, a, you know, you're not a volcano. But you seethe inwardly. Maybe you internalize the offense, and then you begin to hate the person. And that's inevitably going to seep out as gossip and slander. You can't stop it. 
that will happen. If you don't forgive, it's going to infect you, and it's going to come out in, in gossip and slander. You're going to try to say things to convince others of your poisoned opinion. You're going to want to damage their reputation so that you feel justified in your anger. And you, and you feel vindicated in your attitude toward whoever sinned against you. And this is obviously very harmful to the body. Gossip and slander, it destroys unity in the church. So we've got to be aware of that. Gossip and slander is a, is a form of, of this sinful speech Paul wants us to get rid of. Or here are a few seemingly less significant ways we do this. Okay? Belittling. Belittling. So that's when we disparage people or make them seem insignificant by how we speak to them or about them. Okay? So you're making them little, right? Belittling. Making them feel or seem insignificant by how we speak to them or about them to other people. Talking down to somebody, elevating yourself above them, taking, you're acting like you're superior to them. That's, that's belittling. That's a form of, of speech that's, that's disruptive to body life. We've got to get rid of that. Um, it reveals a proud heart. How about biting sarcasm? Okay, biting sarcasm. A joke that stings a little bit because there's some resentment behind it. You know, it's barbed. Sometimes we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're joking with other people when we're sarcastic with them. Ever been there? You know, you're just jabbing back and forth. But often, though, there's an element of truth in the sarcasm. And it's intended, if we're honest, to pain that person or to provoke them or even kind of like put them in their place, kind of rebuke them in a way. But it's not like a true rebuke, not a healthy rebuke. It's just a sarcastic rebuke. You're not really sure about the intentions of the comment. I'm not saying all sarcasm is bad. I like sarcasm. But this biting sarcasm that has a barb of, of something else motivating it is sinful, and we've got to get rid of that. It's, it's, it's harmful to the body. It breeds suspicion, and, it's, uh, and it causes conflict. The Spirit doesn't want us, our speech to be characterized by that. Uh, I just try to throw a word on here that encapsulated everything I was trying to say. Indecency. Um, that's another way that, that, another form of this corrupt speech uh, indecency, what I mean by that is this is speech that's rough, it's crude, coarse, and even vulgar. Sexual innuendos are, are sadly commonplace in evangelicalism, like within the church, the evangelical church. And I think that's in part because we've been so shaped by secularized media. We just drink that stuff in and think we're not affected by it. Later in chapter 5 of Ephesians, Paul's going to condemn what he calls coarse jesting in uh, 5.4. So if you look down there, you'll see this. Let, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, is the way ESV translates that. And that crude joking is kind of the idea that I, I'm, I'm trying to get at here with this word indecency. Uh, it, in the context, it appears to be jokes that are sexual in nature. He's going to spend an extended treatment on purity in chapter 5. And I think because it was a Problem in Ephesus, that's a problem in Lynchburg, right? Like, it's a, it's a human problem. So he's going to spend an extended, extended treatment on that in chapter 5, but I just want to point this out right now. He, he says that these kinds of things, Paul says in chapter 5, should not even be named in the church. Like, shouldn't even have a place. You shouldn't even talk about Like, it should be abhorrent if the church is sort of, even smells a little bit like this. So, I mean, it's just, it's crazy to think how far we've come as, as the church. So, indecency, that shouldn't characterize our speech as people of the new creation. That's all I'm saying. Frivolousness is another example of corrupt speech. And uh, this is probably the most convicting for me. I'm trying to drive the nail in my, you know, in my heart here on this one. This is talk that is out of place or unimportant or that doesn't fit the moment. Talk that's just out of place, it's unimportant, doesn't fit the moment. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a place in the Christian life for humor. I like humor. I like laughter. Now, in, in respect, irrespective of whether I like it or not, it's biblical, okay? Uh, it's, in, it's in Scripture. These are good things, gifts of God, even for silliness, okay? You've got a category for that. But 
what I'm getting at here is the, the constant triviality, the constant frivolity, and especially when it comes to discussing the truth or the things of God. And that is not helpful for the body. This kind of speech is not thoughtful. It's not accomplishing anything positive or meaningful. And this may possibly have been, uh, or it definitely was, the most convicting for me in, in these moments. These kind of words fall short. They distract others when we should be focusing them on the truth or encouraging them or edifying them. And ultimately, this, this too, I think, is a form, a subtle form, but it's a form of, of corrupt speech, speech that, that needs to go. So if we're going to battle against our sinful speech, which we all have a different remnants of in our life, if we're going to battle that, if we're going to close our mouths and show restraint with what we say, we've got to know something incredibly important, something that Paul knew, I think, that was driving this, these commands. And it gets at where sinful speech actually comes from. Okay? Any guesses? Got to know this. Where does it come from? Shout it out. Yes, the heart. Sinful heart. Sinful speech comes from sinful hearts. So that's incredibly important. Our words come from our hearts. Now, we could say it like this. Our words, or or what we say, are the window to our inmost person. So when you think heart, we've got to put our our Bible minds on here, not our cultural minds, our Disney minds. Get the Disney minds out, okay? Heart, according to Disney, is all you feel. Heart, according to the Bible, is all you are, okay? All you think. Includes what you feel. Includes your volition. It's everything. It's like, it's like your inner person um, makes decisions, reasons. So, when our words come from our hearts, it means it comes from our inmost person. It's the, the words are our, the window to our innermost man or woman. They show us, our words show us what's dominating our hearts. So, think of, think of your heart like a sponge, and whatever has, that sponge has absorbed... When it is squeezed and what comes out of that, that's, that's like our words. Our words are the overflow of what's in our heart. And this is a theme throughout Scripture. So I, I just put two texts up there, and they were a, a list. But um, listen to Proverbs 16.23. You don't have to turn there, but you can write it down. This is a translation from the NET, the Net Bible. It says, and I think it grabs the, the idea here. It says, the wise person's heart makes his speech wise. Hear that? The wise person's heart makes his speech wise. So, implication, if your heart's full of wisdom, full of truth, speech is going to be wise and truthful too. But if your heart's full of foolishness, if we turn that around, guess what's coming out? More foolishness. If your heart's full of lust, guess what's coming out? Impure speech. So Jesus says the same thing in a number of places in the Gospels, but I want you to turn to Luke 6.45. Keep your finger in Ephesians. We won't be here long. Luke 6.45. We're going somewhere with this. I'm not just trying to bury you, okay? So hang with me. We'll grab the context from verse 43. We're just going to parachute in here. Verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. You hear that? Good person, out of the good treasure of his heart. This is just an illustration. Good person, the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For, here's the reality, out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So, there's the idea. I'm just wanting you to connect these dots that our words are tethered to our hearts and reveal us. They tell on us. Okay? So we can't, we can't say, I didn't mean that. You know, if I, if I had this evil thing I said to my wife, 
or my kids, I can't be like, wow, I didn't really mean to hurt you. It's like, no, you said something evil, so that betrayed my heart. Like, I did mean to hurt you in that moment. I may regret it now, but I can't, I can't cop out. I can't minimize my sin and say I didn't mean to because my intention from my heart was to use my speech to hurt and wound. You see that? Our, our speech tells on us and helps us see what's actually in our hearts. Now, as believers, we have been given a new nature. So, okay, these things, got to bring these things together. We've been given a new nature, a new identity. We've been justified, we've been cleansed, and now Christ is reigning on our hearts. So, it, turn back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3. Paul prays for strength in verse 16, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You see that? So this idea of Christ dwelling in our hearts means that He's reigning there, has begun His reign in our hearts, and He's begun to influence the most inner part of who we are. He has been. And He gains influence as we learn to trust Him more. That's what it means, that... that that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. As we learn to trust Jesus more, He gains more influence in the most inner man, in the inner person. And He influences us as His truth is brought to bear in our lives, and we believe it. Once the truth is in our hearts, it's going to come out in our speech. You see the connection? Let me just illustrate this, just real-time example. Let's go back to the, the, which one? Gossip and slander one. Let's say you're struggling with, with slandering, your, slandering your roommate or housemate or whoever you're living with. Once she leaves, and your other quadmates come out, you begin to subtly tear her down to them. And then you realize, that's the pattern, I'm doing this a lot. Well, you can try to stop doing that. Uh, and it might work for a little while, but it won't work long term. Why? Well, because you haven't dealt with the heart. You haven't dealt with the inner part of you, with what you think and what you believe. That's gone unchecked. You're slandering your roommate because she hurt you. Now you've taken up an offense against her in your heart. Rather than believing the Scriptures and handling the offense in the way that God has told you to handle it, and then as a result forgiving her, you've tried to handle it your own way. So your heart's making assessments about how the right way you should handle this thing. And it's actually the wrong way. And now, you've internalized the hurt, your heart is full of bitterness, and that bitterness is spilling out in slander. So what do you do? Well, First, in this case, if we're going to deal with your heart, you would renew your mind in a couple of areas. You would renew your mind about how great a sinner you are and how great God's mercy has been toward you, like right out of the gate. So what she's done to you pales in comparison to what you've done to Christ. You've got to renew your mind there because it doesn't seem that way. It seems like what she's done to you is greater than anything you've ever done, and it justifies your resentment of her. But that's not true. Okay, so you're believing a lie. So we've got to get that straight first. You've got to renew your mind. And you've got to acknowledge to God that you've sinned in growing resentful towards your roommate and slandering her, regardless of how she sinned against you. That doesn't matter right now. What matters is your heart's response to the situation, and you have sinned. And this, right out of the gate, humbles you. It humbles your heart at the start, and it puts you in a position now to reconcile. Then, depending on what happened, you know, that's, that's the X factor. We don't know in my hypothetical example. But depending on what happened, you would likely go to your friend in a spirit of reconciliation and you would address that issue. You forgive the offense in your heart and, and what you're doing in that moment is you're imitating like on a small scale what Christ has done for you in the macro. Okay, so you're just sort of bending that out in a very little bitty way. You know, your $5 when you've been forgiven the million. So you forgive her in your heart, and then you repent for all the sinful slander that you've done to your friend. Now, this is inner renewal that's taking place. 
And that will have a direct correlation on your words and your ability to stop slandering her. And if you're tempted to resent her after this, you remind yourself that it's forgiven, it's done, and you're not to seek out your pound of flesh. That's not your job. You're beginning to think, again, the lie, that you're the judge, but you're not. God is the judge, and you've forgiven this thing, and it's absorbed under the blood of Christ. Pretty soon, you renew in your mind, and you're acting out of faith, you're going to find your words following suit out of a heart that's characterized by the truth. So that, I'm just trying to illustrate the process. Like You can't just, just nip the bud and think that you've got to the root, because you haven't. And you're not going to ultimately be able to get any lasting change or transformation in your life unless you're dealing with the heart issue. So, it's very important that we understand the source of the corrupt speech is in our hearts so that we can appropriately deal with our hearts like we need to in the renewal of our minds like Paul's told us to do. But, we've got to put it away. That's clear, point number one. But that's not all he's told us here. He's also said some, a positive command. He says, instead, we should build with, build with your words instead of tearing down or destroying with your words. You should build with your words. Look in verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So we are keying in on The only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear it. Paul is commanding us in this clause to speak good things. That's literally what he's saying. Literally, um, something good. Speak something good. Um, I.e., not corrupting. <laughs> the opposite of that. And I love the way with this something good, he keeps connecting us back to chapter 2, verse 10 where he says that we've been created by God for good works, that he's prepared beforehand for us to walk in, this good works theme that God's created us for, he's just continually connecting us back to what he's describing here are those good works from chapter 2.10 that he's created us to live out. And this, this good that we're to speak with our mouths is one of those works. And I, I love that because that means that, that God is for us in this process. Okay? So no matter how dominated you feel by your sinful speech, like God is fundamentally for you. Like He chose you, redeemed you, saved you, and destined you for good works, and actually created those good works for you to walk in, and this is one of them. So your ability to speak something good is ordained by Him. So that should give us lots of confidence that this is going to happen. Okay? This is going to work. God's gonna, he's for us, and this is our destiny to become the kind of people who know and embrace and speak what is good. And in this way, we come to reflect God himself. But what exactly does he have in mind when he's talking about good speech? Well, obviously, good speech is pretty broad, right? Intentionally. But, but the next few phrases give us some additional insight. He says, these good words are words that build up. So that's obvious. But good words build up. That's, that's what he says here. Only such as is good, or something that is good, for building up. So the purpose, at least initially, is for building up. These good words build up. This means that good speech is productive rather than destructive. Here, do you guys remember the imagery um, uh, or the background of this word, build up, if you were here last year or even in the review a couple weeks ago, it's that temple imagery. Okay, It's the temple. So this building imagery. Back in chapter 2, Paul describes the church as that final temple of God that's growing, that's being built up as more and more people come to faith in Christ and grow up to maturity. That's what the church is. Our words are one of the chief tools that God uses in the building project, in the temple construction project. He uses our words. They're used by God to build up His temple. So that means our words are used by God to convert people, i.e., get more people to be part of the temple, 
and to mature those people, to get those people displaying more of the image of God, to grow them up to maturity. So God used our words for both those things. That's a good, those are good words. Words that build up, that bring the temple up and erect it from its blueprints now up into actuality and reality. So then, good words are any words that contribute to this process. Any words that contribute to this, this process of building up. And that's not all he says. Good words build up, but good words also give grace, he says. Good words give grace. The next phrase he says here continues to add clarity. We're to speak good words for building up in order that it might give grace to those who hear. So it's a very parallel idea, if you think about it, to building up the temple. It's actually conferring or like mediating God's grace through your words. I think Paul is saying here that the words bring God's saving and sanctifying grace to bear on those who hear them. Good words do that. They bring God's saving, converting, on the one hand, and His sanctifying or maturing grace. He brings those, that grace to bear. It's one, it's grace is that, the whole thing. Okay? It brings that to bear on the people who hear them with faith. Good words are words that are full of the gospel of God, full of the truth of God, that, it, that if, if believed, it sets the sinner free. John 8.32 You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Good words, then, are, are God's words. Right? God's words. So, again, I like to try to get as practical as I can for my sake and yours. Uh, let's think through some examples of the kind of speech that builds up, okay? The kind of speech that gives grace. I got really small, didn't it? <laughs> examples of edifying speech. Wow, it's small. Sorry, guys. All right, there's a lot. Okay, I'm going to back up before you start writing. This, this is a, this, there's a lot here. So if you're already tired, I'm sorry. You're going to go, you're going to fall asleep probably. So don't worry about writing all this down. Let's just think through it together, and if you want the notes, I can give them to you. Okay? Is that deal? I know we're, we're at the end of a long day already, and I teach for a long time. Okay? So, <laughs> examples of edifying speech. Speech that communicates the gospel of God from a heart that is trusting in it and meditating on it. Okay? Speech that communicates the gospel of God. It's on your lips. It's coming out of your mouth. Why? Because you're feasting on it in your heart. You know it in your mind. You're familiar with it. You've got texts that you meditate on. And God renews you and builds you up as a result of it. He's doing that in your heart. And so your speech is flavored with the gospel of God. The good news to sinners. It's speech that's full of the promises of God from a heart that is nourished by those promises. Speech that's full, it's characterized by the promises of God. You know them. And again, it's from a heart that is nourished by those promises. You're believing those promises for yourself and it's bearing fruit in your life. That means you know where they are in your Bible. You know what they mean. You know how they apply because you're walking in that. And so your speech then, if your heart's characterized by that, guess what? Your speech will be characterized by that. It's speech that doesn't shy away from the warnings of God when necessary, offered in love. Speech that doesn't shy away from the warnings of God. It doesn't minimize those in Scripture. We're not embarrassed by God issuing very clear warnings in Scripture and we're not shy to give those to the folks that need them. Those are good words. Good words. By the way, if you're, if you're sharing the gospel with someone, they have to repent of sin to come to Christ. So we're, we're not just going to kind of give them the God loves you and everything's going to be great version of the gospel. That's not the gospel. They're, that's a portion of it if they repent and believe. But the bad news, we have, to, we have to lay it out there. We're sinners in the target of God's wrath. 
And they have to see that on that, feel that, in order to repent of that. They have to know they have cancer before they'll take the treatment. So we have to issue the warnings of God when necessary, motivated out of love. And good speech is speech that doesn't shy away from that. Doesn't shy away from the warnings. Good speech is speech that reminds others of the character of God, again, from a heart that knows and is trusting God. Reminds others of the character of God, who He is. That means you know who He is. According to His Word, you know the texts in His Word that describe who He is and what those texts mean. And your heart nourishes on that. You believe that and it's bearing fruit. God is bearing fruit in your life as a result of that. And then you're going to be equipped to take that to other people. Again, your speech is connected to your heart. This speech, good speech, is speech that identifies the fruit of God in another's life and consistently affirms it, no matter how small the fruit. This is biblical affirmation. Speech that, that is quick to, to see it, to see the grace of God at work in someone's life. We're not praising the individual because we know that God works fruit. He produces fruit. But we are affirming the individual. We're affirming that God is at work in your life, that it is very evident. We get behind them to see, look, God has been faithful. He's produced these things in you, no matter how small they are. Every act of obedience, we should, this, this tethered to faith, right? These people that we're around are believing God and they're trying to obey God. That's fruit of the Spirit at work in their life. Dead people can't do that. So we need to point that out and help people see that. That God is at work in their lives. And that's speech that's, that's full of that um, is good speech. Um, now's probably a good time. This little book, Practicing Affirmation by Sam Crabtree. If you're a reader, you're not already overwhelmed with reading. You can read this like two pages at a time. That's about as fast as you can read this book because it's so penetrating. Um, I will... Just offer that to you and say, if you want to be convicted and refreshed at the same time, read that book, Practicing Affirmation. Very practical, very helpful. So, speech that identifies the fruit of God in another's life and consistently affirms it no matter how small is good speech. You thought we were done. No, we're not. Number six, speech that is full of interest in the welfare and state of the other. That's good speech. And that means that the speech asks sincere questions and slows down for thoughtful listening. Make sense? Your speech is good speech if it's full of selfless interest in the other, in someone else. And then you, you use your words to draw that other person out, to understand what that other person is, to, to feel the, the burdens of that other person. You use your words, that's good speech, to help enter in, enter in there. Number seven. I've only got ten. Okay. Number seven. Speech that isn't afraid to gently expose the deception of those caught in sin when necessary. And that's out of a sincere love for the other person. So good speech is speech that's not afraid to expose deception. Right? That's what truth does. Truth comes in. So you see someone, they're caught in sin, they're caught in a, a deception, you may have been there, and in fact, you probably were there, and that's why you can see it so clearly. So good speech then comes to that person in love, ideally in a relationship, and begins to help them unpack that and see that. Because again, remember, when you're deceived, you know it. Think it through. No, you don't. You don't know it when you're deceived, that's the essence of deception. So you need someone to help you. Uh, see it. So good speech helps others see the deception. Again, good speech helps another see step by step then how to overcome a particularly ensnaring sin pattern and then to put on righteousness. Think about that. Your speech is used by God to help another person understand how to grow out of the sin pattern that, they, that they're involved in. That's another example of good speech. 
Number nine, getting there. Speech that communicates a willingness to reconcile even when the offense runs deep is an evidence of good speech. Speech is communicating a willingness to, to reconcile, to, to overcome conflict, to forgive, to bear up, to be patient. Speech that's communicating that is good speech. And finally, speech that rejoice, rejoices in another's joy and laments in another's sorrow is good speech. Those are good words. And if you just sort of step back and you look at all these, I know we've only got five, five of the ten up, um, but if you were to step back and look at them all, what you would see is if these are followed out, the church is going to be incredibly strengthened and unified as a result of this. Um, it's, it's building up this temple. It's building up the body of Christ, this kind of speech. So, how do we grow in having this kind of speech and having these kinds of conversations, right? So, we're going to get fully boots on the ground, okay? That's it's great, idealistically, to be, to be this way, to be characterized by these things. But that's often not our experiences. So, I'm envisioning myself in your shoes, and here's what I would say to you. How do you, how do you get there? All right? Fill up your heart with the truth. Fill up your heart with the truth. So the first thing we want to be thinking about is this. Are our own hearts full of truth so that we have something to share? You remember the guy last week who was a freeloader? Poor? Didn't have anything to share. He wasn't working hard. You know? So what's the, what's the thing? Okay, he needs to work hard. He has something to share. So the same kind of principle is here. We need to work hard, fill up our hearts with truth so we have something to share. Are we learning about God? Are we being nourished by his words? Are we being humbled by his love? Are we taking heed at his warnings? Are we seeking to obey his commands? Are we applying the sermons in our own lives? We need to cultivate this so that we have something to share. So number one, fill up your heart with the truth. And there's opportunities all around you to do that. This is a means by which you can do that, preaching. Number two, think of yourself as a learner. Think of yourself as a learner first. Okay? You are a learner, not a contributor. Just kind of like embrace that. It's very hard, I know, especially for you talkers. We often think of ourselves in conversations as the mature ones. As people with something to offer others. But we are very likely more in the category of the needy person in this passage. Okay? So that... Sorry, I kind of skipped this. Good for building up as fits the occasion probably not the best translation of that. It's uh, building up the one in need would be the better way to translate that. Okay? So the idea is that there's a needy person in the congregation and your, your, your words are actually building up this person. It's ESV. Verse is um, verse 29. Yeah. As the ESV has as building up, it's going to come right after the building up part. As fits the occasion. What version do you have? What does your say? I mean, like, the, 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 the text. Nice. Enhanced translation. Oh, I was just curious of what it, how it translated it. Oh, Mike says, stop using foul or abusive language, but let everything you say be good and helpful to build up and give grace to your hearers. Okay, so they skipped it all together. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. This sounds like a very dynamic translation, so those have, those have their place. All right? So my point in this, not to get off on a big rabbit trail, but it's, it's the one who's in need, I think, is the, is the better way here. So there's a needy person in the congregation. So my point is, like, you're, you're probably more in that needy category than you realize. Okay? Because you're young and inexperienced in life. So humble yourself and learn to ask good questions. Learn to grow from the spiritual insights of others. Talk less, listen more. Learn to initiate good conversations through questions. Say, hey guys, what hit you guys from the sermon today? Pastor said X. Uh, what would it look like if we applied this in our, in our life this week? Uh, what are some common roadblocks to, to obeying this passage, to obeying these things? Uh, what lies might we be, what might we be believing if, if we're not obeying this? Okay? Uh, what are some biblical motivations to get after this? Uh, what we were taught today, yada, yada, yada. I mean, those are like 
we could map this out for a long time, but I'll stop. So let those that are more mature build you up, okay? Let that happen. Just kind of envision yourself as in that category initially. We're all kind of simultaneously in both categories, so of the one who needs and then the one who's tasked to build up. But think of yourself as a learner. Number three, I don't have 10 of these. I only have six of these, okay? So number three, apply the scriptures often to your own life. Apply the scriptures often to your own life. Seek to apply the truth to your life as much as you can. This will give you, listen here, this will give you the most insight the quickest. Hebrews says solid food is for the mature who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. That means they're like getting after the truth in their daily lives, trying to figure out what it means to apply the things they're hearing. They're working out. They're doing spiritual bench presses, and that's developing their discernment very quickly. So you're going to learn to help others. You're going to learn to bring truth to bear in others' lives to the degree that you're growing in the practical application of Scripture yourself. The Bible calls that getting the log out of your own eye first so that you can see clearly to get the speck out of your brother's eye. So apply the Scriptures to your own life. Number four, learn to discern the needs of others. Learn to discern the needs of others. As we take an interest in the lives of others, as we get to know each other, we've got to know how to genuinely recognize where people are at and what they need. So think about it this way. When you come into Boundless, or you come into the main service on Sunday, where the body's gathering, are you thinking more selfishly or selflessly? Okay? Just ask yourself the question. Selfishly or selflessly? So selfishly. Uh, and not nece- this isn't necessarily sinful, but just more like self-focused, okay? Where are my friends? Who do I know that I can sit with? Uh, wh- where can I fit in? Who can I hang out with after this? You hear the focus versus the selfless mindset. Who might need encouraging tonight? I wonder how the person I talked with last week is doing with the circumstance that they mentioned to me then. Uh, who, who maybe can I meet with tonight? Lord, in, bring me into a, a connection with a person who I can pray with tonight that would be helpful you know, and just that I can listen to tonight and draw them out. Lord, lead me to a person who is new and that needs to feel welcome tonight. So those are examples. Of, so when you're, when you're coming into these settings, learn to, to discern the needs of others. May that be on your radar. Um, and that's how we would grow in having these kinds of conversations. We, we initiate those. And this is obvious, but freely share what God's teaching you. Don't be afraid to do that. Don't be afraid of scoffers thinking that all you want to do is talk about the Bible or talk about spiritual things. Uh, Just let them scoff and keep doing it. (laughs) Because on the final day, the only one that's going to regret is the scoffer, not you. Okay? So is your heart nourished by the Lord? What truth did he use to nourish you? Share that. Are you convicted and then you need to change in an area? What steps are you taking to implement that change? Share that with somebody. All these things are, are fodder for sharing with our friends. And as we learn to talk through these things together, we're going to be sharpened and edified. Last little tidbit, little piece of advice. Learn to be genuinely affirming. Let's put it this way. Learn to be genuinely affirming of and thankful for the grace of God in the lives of others. So we've already kind of hit that. But is that a regular practice for you? Would someone call you an affirming person? Um, so affirmation is, is sort of like you're looking at what God's done in the past. You're acknowledging that and you're sharing that with a person. Encouragement is sort of spurring them on to, to, to be faithful to, in the future. Okay. So learn to be genuinely affirming and thankful for the grace of God in the lives of others. So Paul's told us not to destroy with our words. If we go back to our, our main thing here, don't destroy Build up with your words. And then the third thing he says, very brief here, is don't anguish the Holy Spirit. Verse 30, don't anguish the Holy Spirit. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't anguish the Spirit. Now this command seems kind of random at first glance. Maybe out of place. You might be wondering how it fits into what Paul's been saying. Well, it helps to know that Paul connects it grammatically to what he just said. He said, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but speak what's good and don't grieve the Spirit. It's like a package. All three of those things are like a grammatical package for Paul. 
By the way, some translations don't translate the and there, but don't let that wig you out. It's there. But what does grieving the Spirit have to do with our speech? What does that have to do with our speech? Everything. Okay? And that's Paul's point. When we tear down the body of Christ, we anguish the Holy Spirit himself. But why is that? Well, that's because he is the Spirit who has unified us. The Spirit who is dwelling in his new temple. And when we use our words to tear down the church, we oppose the Spirit. We're actually working in opposition to him and to what he's doing in the church. And this grieves his heart. So just to put this even more bluntly, it doesn't matter how passionately you worship if you're not reconciling in your relationships with one another in the body. The Spirit is anguished by you. That's huge to realize that, that our, our horizontal relationships matter tremendously to the Spirit, enough to inspire Paul to say that it grieves the heart of the Spirit of God when we're not dealing with these things properly. And not only does he just say the Spirit, you're grieving the Spirit. Notice how he describes the Spirit. You grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Like, he chose you to be part of the team. What are you doing? <laughs> it's like, whoa! And he's the Holy Spirit of God, from God himself, dwelling in the temple. People died in the Old Testament when they disrespected God and his temple project. Okay, So let's, we don't want to be like Israel of old who grieved the Spirit in the wilderness in Isaiah. As Isaiah talks about that, he was recounting that. So, this is technically a command, but it functions like a motivation. And you, you feel that, I'm sure. As people who have been radically saved and are now indwelt by the gracious Spirit, to grieve Him should pain us. It's like wounding our greatest friend. We hurt God Himself as we tear down the body with our words. But it also implies that the flip side is true. As we build up the body with our words, we bring the Spirit of God unique pleasure and joy. And we're in harmony with Him. And we pursue the unity of the church. And I, I think that's incredible. This is, he's telling us not to grieve the Spirit, but the flip side of that is that the Spirit rejoices when we're pulling in the same direction. So, very, very good. We're just going to tie that up there. There's more we could say on that, but I'm just going to leave it there. So, that's Paul's instruction to us. How, how we use our words matter. It's connected to our hearts. Paul wants us to practice cultivating speech that's good, speech that builds up, speech that gives grace. Now, I want us to close tonight in a unique way, okay? So this past Sunday, during the prayer time, I was up on stage, you know, getting ready to do the worship thing, and, and Pastor Brian's kind of, he, he's kept this in front of us, and I'm so thankful that he has. He's, he's encouraged us not to forget about the members who are shut in their homes. They're unable to worship with us for whatever reason. And it's, these folks are still very isolated from loved ones that normally visit them and are able to visit them. And every time he mentions that, I mean, I pray for him in that moment, and my heart just kind of like, it sinks to think about that. Like, they're our members of Timberlake. They're part of our body here. Um, and I just kind of keep thinking, like, what, what could I do? can't visit them. So I realized that I was preaching this text to you guys on using our words to build up the body. And so what I want us to do tonight, if you're able and have the time, I know I've, I've talked a long time, but if you're able to stick around for a few minutes, Take a few minutes and write a note of encouragement to one of these folks who are homebound. Now, we've got everything provided for you back there. So all you have to do is use your words, okay, via the pen. And it's okay if your penmanship is bad. It's all right. I know you don't know them, or likely don't know them, and they definitely don't know you. And that's okay. It doesn't have to be this, this profound letter that you're going to write. Uh, even if you're brand new to our church, you can still write them a little note. It doesn't have to be long. You can tell them thank you for their years of faithful, their, their years of faithfulness, their years of faithful membership, because you're now experiencing God's grace that was laid, through, laid as a foundation from their faithful labor. Like we're standing on their shoulders tonight in here with what we're doing. And the friendships that we get to experience in here is because they were faithful. You can tell them that although you don't know their situation, you've prayed for them tonight. You can tell them that God is with them, that he loves them, 
and that you do too, even though you don't know them. Anything, bottom line, just anything to show them that we care will go a long way for these folks. And I, I would love to see whenever, you know, whatever, three days, four days from now, whenever the post office gets the mail there, that they go out and they have like three or four cards from different, different folks, because there's not that many of them. There's not that many of those members in our church. So I'd love, to, I'd love to ha- for them to have cards in their mailboxes from different ones of you in a couple days. Just let them know you're from TBC, so uh, they don't think it's some fraud thing, trying to get their money. It'd be great. <laughs> All right, let's pray. They're going to be back there on the tables. So I think, Christy, you got them back there. Yeah, if you're interested in that, they'll be, no, they're in that basket. Okay, perfect. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the encouragement from your word. We pray that you would work in us and through us. Um, and help us to have speech that's edifying that builds up your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.